receive from the Lord, know who God is, and follow carefully all the words of this law. In other words, God's word is to be bouncing around in the king's head, and his actions, his behavior, is to be living out what's in his head coming from God's law. So let me ask you a question. God's true king, the kind of king that God wants to sit on the throne, who's the real king, though? In Deuteronomy, isn't God saying, the kind of king that I want, the kind of leader I want for my people is actually a servant before he's a king. He's a servant before he's a leader. God is at the top of the hierarchical chart, not the king. So why is the request in 1 Samuel 8 such a problem? Because the people come to Samuel and say, we want a king, just like the kings of all the other nations. That was the request. They didn't just say, we want a king. They said, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to have a king like all the other nations. That is why God says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're really rejecting me. God was to be the ultimate king. The king was to first be a servant, thinking and living out God's word, and then the people were to be following that. Well, that kind of a lesson comes up in that, at least as I thought about it. The lesson goes like this. God's substitutes always have bad consequences. You ever notice that? I don't know about you, but um, substitutes are a problem. For example, sugar substitutes, they're terrible. Butter substitutes, that's worse. In most of life, substitutes are almost always inferior. That's good news for the Eagles tonight, right? So Dak's not playing. We're going to get Danucci. You didn't even know who he was a week ago. Um, the Eagles have a whole um, team full of substitutes as well. And the point is, God's substitutes aren't just slightly inferior. God's substitutes will ruin your life. And what is the temptation for the king in Deuteronomy is the temptation for every one of us to run after a God substitute. Isn't power or personality or resume, isn't that just a substitute for what God can do? Isn't um, political alliance or trust in an educational system or an economic theory or a philosophical system, that's just a God substitute. And isn't possessions? A retirement account, a bank account, just a substitute for something to trust. Those things in and of themselves are not wrong, but when they become the object of our trust, when they become the object of our faith, they then become God's substitutes, and God's substitutes always have bad consequences. So that's kind of the backdrop to this thing. And therefore, you're easily going to be able to see how Saul, the first king, is the wrong kind of king. How does Saul fit in? Well, we could pick a number of incidents from his life, but I just want to pick a one chapter, 1 Samuel 15. You can read that later today. It's great to kind of read the uh, twists and turns. Um, let me just kind of highlight for you what's going on, and hopefully you'll keep those ideas from Deuteronomy 17 bouncing around in your head. So God comes, right? God speaks to Samuel. Samuel goes to Saul. Samuel is the prophet, right? He speaks for God. So God says through Samuel to Saul, here's the command. Saul, now go 
attack the Amalekites and totally destroy them. Now, you may look at that and say, oh my goodness, that's terrible. I can't believe God would say that. No, to not do this would actually be an act of injustice. The Amalekites were the one who attacked the weak as they were leaving Egypt. You know, those that are trailing behind, they attack from the rear, and God said, justice will one day come. So now says to this new king, so you go and attack the Amalekites, not because you're better than them. This is an act of justice. Go and totally destroy the Amalekites. Now, let me just ask, when you see that command, is that command really vague and hard to understand? Do you think that Samuel commanded that to Saul in like um, Egyptian or some other language so he couldn't understand it? It seems pretty clear, right? Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy them. But that's not exactly what happened. In fact, uh, you put the next screen up. But Saul and the army spared Agag. Now, Agag is the king of the Amalekites. Totally destroyed the Amalekites. Agag's an Amalekite. He should have been totally destroyed. He spares Agag. Oh, but that's not all. And the best of the sheep and the best of the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything else that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed all that stuff. Hmm. God said, totally destroy the Amalekites. Saul had a better idea. I'll keep Agag alive, and I'll keep the best of the sheep, the best of the lambs, the best. I'll keep all the good stuff. Now, what does that say in comparison with Deuteronomy 17? What's he saying? Well, he's going to increase possessions as he keeps all this stuff. Political alliance is here. Here's kind of a fascinating thing. Yeah, many of you have seen Braveheart, right? In movies like Braveheart and in the ancient world, when, you, when your army won, did you kill the king you were conquering? Heck no. Kings were too valuable. You could ransom them, or better yet, you could now be a king of kings. Huh. So as long as Agag's still alive, Saul isn't just king, he's king of kings now. Hmm. Saul is actually defying every one of the principles from Deuteronomy 17. Now, here's a problem. We do the same thing. Let me uh, share with you the lesson. Obedience is the true test of following. When you're given a command, when you know God's calling you to do something, when you believe God's prompting you to do this, um, we normally go through a mental process that works something like this. Hmm. God's asking me to do A, but let me assess if I really think A is wise. So A, I think A is good. I, um, can I give you a little point? Agreement is not necessarily obedience. Many of you raised kids. Our kids often obey us, not because they're obeying us, but because they agree with us. Practice the piano for 15 minutes. The little kid, hmm. If I don't practice the piano, I won't be allowed out. I won't be able to play on the video. I won't be, oh, you know what? I'll practice the piano. That's not obedience. Obedience isn't you agree. If you're agreeing, you're trusting your logic, your rational, your rational thought to be able to figure. If you agree with what the command says, that may or may not be obedience. When do you know it's obedience? When it doesn't make sense and you do it anyway. 
Did it make sense for Saul to kill Agag? Heck no. Did it make sense to kill all the good cattle and the good lambs and the good? Heck no. Did it make sense to destroy all of the possessions that were valuable? No. God, but wait a minute. If God is infinitely wiser than we are, and God knows all that can be known, don't you think occasionally God's going to ask us to do things that don't make sense to us? Well, when it doesn't make sense to us and we do what he says anyway, that is obedience. When we go through the process of agreement, that may or may not be obedience. Hmm. Obedience. The true test of following. Saul even comes up with lots of uh, nice-sounding words. He's, first of all, he shifts blame, right? Well, the people saved the animals. It wasn't me. And then he says, yeah, but here's the plan. I saved the animals so I can offer a sacrifice to God. I saved the very best because I want to give the best to God. Our worship, our sacrifice, all that stuff is secondary to our obedience. In fact, these are familiar words in the Bible, but here's kind of the last word coming from Samuel on this. Verses 22, just verse 22 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. The only reason you have to sacrifice is because you've dis disobeyed. And so obedience is better than the sacrifice. How are you doing on that one? If you're anything like me, you struggle with God's substitutes, right? You struggle with wanting things and kind of mixing up the hierarchy so our thinking or something else gets put in God's seat and then God becomes secondary. In fact, I would phrase it like this. You cannot sin. You cannot unless you demote God from his seat in the hierarchy. The only reason we turn our back on God and do something other than what he said is we've demoted him. Once we demote him, we may do anything. But as long as he's in the right seat, we'll do what he says. We'll follow. Oh, we've got one last uh, kind of point here, one last characteristic, one last person to look at. Jesus. Here's a, an interesting exercise. I just took some time. I encourage you to do this. Take the characteristics of Deuteronomy 17, those characteristics of king, and use them as a transparency to lay over Jesus' life. Did Jesus multiply horses? Like, did Jesus really marshal a giant army when he came to... No, no, no. In fact, Jesus was often in trouble with his own disciples because they thought his mission was to defeat Rome. What does Peter do? They come to arrest Jesus. Peter pulls out a sword. He's ready to fight to the death for Jesus. Jesus heals the guy that Peter wounded and tells Peter to put the sword away. Huh, Jesus doesn't trust. He's not marshalling an army, military power. Okay, how about multiplying wives? You know, Jesus had lots of... Not only did Jesus not acquire many wives, he didn't have any wife. He came to purchase the church as his wife. How about possessions? Jesus not only didn't acquire a lot of possessions, he had like no possessions. When um, somebody asked him whether you should pay taxes or not, did you ever notice this? He didn't even have a denarius that he could pull from his pocket. He had to borrow one from somebody else. Check, check, check. How about the last one? God's word in his head being lived out in his life. Yeah, talk about not just that somewhat, but perfectly. If you push Jesus, scripture came out. 
you cut Jesus, he bled Bible. I mean, all the time you read through the scriptures, if you know anything about the Old Testament, he's always thinking about the Bible. He's always thinking about God. And keeping God in the right seat? How about this adventure? The Thursday before his crucifixion? Does Jesus completely agree? Humanly speaking, does he agree with the Father's plan that he should go to the cross? What's he say? Father, if there's any way for this salvation thing to be accomplished without my going to the cross, please, let's do that plan. But not my will, your will be done. He doesn't even put his will above the Father. He keeps it intact. Now, remember the words that I read. Does God desire sacrifice or obedience? It's not sacrifice. Interestingly, the writer of Hebrews picks up that line of thought from 1 Samuel 15. Here's what he writes. Therefore, when Christ, Messiah, came into the world, he said, quoting 1 Samuel 15, sacrifice and offering you do not desire. But then he updates it. What do you desire? A body you prepared for me. With burnt offering and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. You know what those words say to me? Yeah, God desires obedience more than he desires sacrifice, more than he desires offerings. But let's face it, we're just like Saul. I don't know about you, I screw up all the time. I mean, if I'm counting on sacrifices and offerings, I'm going to be making lots of sacrifices and offerings. But the point of Hebrews 10 is, Jesus not only comes as king, meeting all of the qualifications, checking all of the boxes, he also comes for all of us who failed in the obedience assignment. And so he comes not only as king, he comes as savior. He is the sacrifice for all of our flaws and all of our failures. And so now through savior Jesus, the king, we can have access and find forgiveness. So now obedience isn't something to earn merit. Obedience now is saying thank you, living out the mission that Jesus was sent on to win us. Let's pray together. Father, when we think about uh, the qualifications that are mentioned in Deuteronomy 17, we realize that not just all the Old Testament kings, but we fall short too. Lord, we have substitutes all over the place in our lives. We substitute power and resume, reputation, personality. We substitute pleasure and political philosophy and economic strategy. We substitute possessions and we begin to trust in what we've accumulated. And so, Lord, we put ourselves at the top of that hierarchical chart rather than take the seat underneath you. Lord, we're thankful that even though you desire obedience more than sacrifice, that you sent the ultimate king, not just as the king, but you sent him as the savior, our ultimate sacrifice. And so, Lord, it's in the name of that king, our savior, 
that we're able to approach you. Help us not just to understand how the Bible's put together as people make way for the coming king, but help us to do a little house cleaning as we make way for Jesus to take kingship of our lives. We pray in his name. Amen.